Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me to the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we want to look at the model church. Now, as we always do in a new book study, we like to give a little bit of background, kind of where the situation was at this time. And at the same time, we like to look at the theme. What is Paul writing? Why is he writing to the church at Thessalonica? And so the church of Thessalonica was founded by Paul, uh, the apostle that is, around 49 to 52 AD. When you do research and you're trying to figure out when the particular church was written or this epistle was written to them, you'll get variations. And so many believe this is Paul's first epistle that was actually written. So approximately 49 to 52 AD. Paul was in Corinth during his second missionary journey when he wrote this letter to the church at Thessalonica. Now those accounts are found in Acts chapter 17. And we read in Acts chapter 17 verse 2, it seems that Paul had only been in Thessalonica for three Sabbath weeks. And so many concur that Paul preached for these three weeks. And in that three-week period, many had come to know Christ. And basically, a church exploded there. And then Paul went uh, to Corinth, and he hears of their testimony. He had left uh, Timothy there. And so Paul now writes to them. And what's interesting, as Paul is in Corinth in Acts chapter 17, he's ministering. But a riot breaks out. Basically, in Thessalonica, there were Greeks and there were Romans, but there was a minority of Jews. And the Jews become angry because Paul preached the gospel. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And it caused a riot condition. And so the young church there did not want to see Paul hurt, harmed in any way. And so by night, they sent him off to Berea, about 50 miles from Thessalonica. And there in Berea, the first opportunity that Paul had, he goes right into the synagogue. He always done that. And he preached the gospel message. Again, think about this. You're in a synagogue. You're a Jew. And here comes this little feisty man. They said that Paul was short. He was bow-legged. He was bald. He had a crooked nose. But he preached the gospel. And he comes and he tells them, Jesus Christ, according to the, the book of Isaiah, is born again. And, and he comes into life, that is. He becomes a man. And then he dies, he's buried, and he resurrects. All of this is found in the book of Isaiah. And so he's teaching from the scrolls. Well, in Berea, they had to get him out too because they were ready to kill him. And so from Berea, uh, Paul now goes to Athens. And there in Athens, he preaches to the philosophers at the time. And if you know anything about the book of Acts chapter 17, when Paul is in Athens... They said, we will hear this babbler another time. Because they often got together at the marketplace there at the Theopolis, it was called, and they would preach the gospel. Or in Paul's situation, he would preach the gospel, but the philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans, they would come and they would give their philosophies at the time. And so no matter where Paul went, he preached the gospel. And yet many did not hear. Or many would not listen. There's a beautiful passage, and I want to read it to you. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, it's a very classic verse. As Paul has left Thessalonica, by force in a sense, he didn't want to leave, but he chose to leave. 
They actually escorted him out. The, the church did. And so Paul goes to Berea. And in verse 11 of Acts chapter 17, listen to what is written, Luke the writer, concerning the Bereans. He says, these were more noble, the word is open-minded, than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word of God with all readiness, and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And so when the church of Thessalonica is on fire, right? Now Paul's chased out of the country or the city, and he goes to Berea, yet the Bereans were really in tune with the word of God, and they wanted to hear the word of God. And it says they were more noble-minded or open-minded to the things of Scripture. They searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And I pray that each one of us would become a Berean to search the Scriptures. And so we know that Paul loved the church at Thessalonica. And even though it was a young church, basically uh, three weeks in the Lord. Yes, the church is established there. And so Paul writes, not to correct any false doctrine or false teachers, but Paul writes to them to encourage them. We're going to see that Paul speaks of them as a model church. They were such a church that was on fire for Christ. If we desire to be a Berean, that is great. But the church at Thessalonica, they were a model church. They were doing everything right. And their witness of Christ was incredible. And so Paul speaks of this now. Let me give you just a little bit of background concerning the city of Thessalonica. Basically, it was under Roman rule. The ancient city was called Therma. The reason they called it Therma, because of its many hot springs in the area. But in 315 BC, after conquering the city, of Therma, Alexander the Great renamed the city Thessalonica. He named the city after his sister, but later the city was renamed or changed the name to Salonica. And currently today, they say that in Thessalonica, as we have the old, the New Testament name, it's approximately about 400,000 in population. In the time that Paul's writing here, uh, it's estimated the population is about 200,000. It was a very still, a, a very much populated area. A city of 200,000 is a lot even today. But they changed the name again. And today it's currently called Thessaloniki. And again, the names changed. But what's interesting about this beautiful epistle, the city of Thessalonica, uh, one of the few New Testament cities that has survived until today. And they can boast of that. Now, I'd like to give you just a little more background. I'd like to give you the author and the purpose and the theme. The author of the epistle most agree that it's Paul the Apostle as he pins this letter from Corinth, as we read, concerning Acts chapter 17. And again, the date of the writing, somewhere around 49, 52 A.D. It's considered his first epistle. And listen to this. They consider it the oldest book of the New Testament. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights and we were going through the Old Testament, and then on Sunday morning we were speaking on the resurrection, that Job believed in the resurrection. In the Old Testament, Job is considered the oldest book. And so here we are with 1 
Thessalonians. Now, the writing. Paul wrote from the city of Corinth. Many agree that Paul uh, wrote 13 epistles. There is a 14th epistle, and that's the book of, of Hebrews. I believe that Paul's the writer of that. You have the argument, those that say he is, those that say he's not. We know that the Holy Spirit would have penned uh, the book. Now, the book of Thessalonians. Many believe Paul's first epistle, as I shared. But listen to the theme now. This is why I'm excited about this beautiful book. And these people lived it, even though they were three weeks in the Lord. The theme is the soon return of Jesus Christ. And so here we are, 1950 years later, and still the anticipation, the waiting upon the Lord. I pray this morning that your hope is not in this country of ours. And this is a great country. I pray that your hope is not, uh, you know, in your own finances. And praise God that he gives us education. Praise God that he gives us, you know, jobs and, and careers and such. But that's not your hope. Maybe God's blessed you and you, you're able to own land or you're able to own a home. But that's not your hope. Like the church at Thessalonica, our hope is in Christ. You see, sooner or later, this whole world is going to burn up. And right now, they're talking so strong. If you're following the news, everybody's concerned about the economy. And my response to that, what if the economy dies? What if we go back to uh, the fall in 1929 when there was a, a market crash? Oh, that'll never happen again. What if it happens? Well, this is an election year. We better put the right candidate. True. We better put the one God desires for us. I hope we're not desiring a king or a ruler of our country like they did when they wanted Samuel to, to choose among the people a king for Israel. And yet God was their king. Interesting. Our hope better be in Christ. Now, I'm not telling you to give up everything and, you know, let's get some white sheets and let's go up to a mountain and wait for Jesus. The Bible says to be busy and to occupy until Christ comes. But please, do not put your hope in this world. You better put your hope in Christ. This was the church at Thessalonica, a young church, a persecuted church. Rome was oppressing them greatly. Many were dying, but their hope was in Christ. That's the theme here. Now, Paul writes the letter. He has a purpose behind it. And there was just three reasons, no false doctrine, no false teachers, but to correct, listen, misconceptions that had arisen in the church. And one of those things you're going to see when we get to chapter 4, when our beloved ones die, where do they go? After this body's had it and it's dead, what happens to the spirit and the soul? And so Paul's going to address that. Secondly, to encourage them in the faith and in godly living. That's why we're going to speak about the model church. Encourage them in the faith. And which church, which believer does not need to be encouraged? We need to be encouraged. And that's what we're going to do in this beautiful book. That's what we're going to do this morning. Now, thirdly, there were three purposes. Finally, to comfort the church and to keep that hope. If the theme is Christ is returning... Christ is coming back. Keep that hope. Keep that fire burning that Jesus will soonly 
return. Imagine the church at Thessalonica. They're anticipating, man, Jesus is coming. I remember when we came to Saving Grace in the late 70s, and, and you know, we finally were hearing the gospel truth. We heard about the rapture of the church. We heard about the seven years of tribulation. And we heard, you know, the concept of the great hope that Jesus is coming. And I mean, we were fired up. And I tell you, we were expecting Christ at any minute. And that should always be the hope of the church. My hope is not in Washington, D.C. My hope is not in the presidents that is past, present, or future. And yes, we are, are to, you know, pray for our presidents. We are to pray for those in office, those that have rule over us. But our hope better be in Christ Jesus. Now, real quick. In the first five chapters, then we're going to go to 2 Thessalonians. Let me just give you the theme because it's going to just go together. And so basically, you come to chapter 1. That's what we're going to see to this morning. The model church. Paul's going to speak about the church at Thessalonica as the model church. And church, this is what how we are to behave as a church this is what we are to mimic, uh, to copy, to pattern ourselves after. In the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, he's going to be speaking about the model servant. How to behave as a servant of the Lord. How to behave as one that is called of God. And that you're a Christian now. How do I behave? In chapter 3, the model brother, the model sister in Christ Jesus. How I act as one now that is saved. How I act now as one that is sanctified, set apart to be used by God. The church at Thessalonica was on fire for the Lord. And so how do you act? How do you behave? How do you respond to your calling? In chapter 4, the model walk of the believer. Because of my hope in Christ, the anticipation of the rapture of the church. We're going to study that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And then chapter 5, it's still a continuance of chapter 4. Again, the model walk of the believer. Because I hope in his soon return, my hope is in Christ. He is my model. This is what uh, the Thessalonians patterned themselves after. They patterned themselves after Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And man, if the church at Thessalonica was on fire, how much should we be on fire for Christ? Now let's go to our text this morning. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in all Paul's letters, epistles, he always gives this introduction. And in the introduction, he always speaks about praying for them, he always speaks of these Siamese twins of the New Testament. We call it grace and peace. And so there's no difference here, except that in this greeting, Paul doesn't bring forth his apostolic authority. And in this greeting, Paul includes himself with Silas and young Timothy. And they were there with Paul in Corinth. And they were part of the body of Christ. And as we continue to study, when Paul leaves Corinth, he sends Timothy now to go govern the church there at Thessalonica. So let's begin here with a salutation or the greeting. Paul's greeting to the church. He begins in verse 1. Paul, 
Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timothy uh, to the church uh, of, the, of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and here's the Siamese twins, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This beautiful greeting. But not just Paul. He uses Silas also. Some of your, some of your Bibles will say Silvanus. The name is Silas. In the, in the Greek, it means man of woods. And so a lot of times the names uh, were what they were, basically. Was he a man of the woods? Was he, you know, uh, one that went camping and such? I don't know. But it says here, greetings from Silas. Now, Silas is an interesting character. He's a Greek. He had replaced uh, Barnabas in the second mission, missionary journey. We find that in Acts chapter 15. And then he says also, not only the greeting from Silas, but the greeting from Timothy. Timothy joined Paul in the ministry in Lystra in Acts chapter 16. Later, Paul's going to send Timothy uh, to the church at Thessalonica. But Timothy's name, he was considered, remember Paul said that Timothy, my son in the spirit. Paul had a love and a compassion to Timothy. Paul, uh, Timothy was his protege. Paul, not only did he get saved in Paul's ministry, but then Paul nurtured him, discipled him, and he taught him. The name Timothy means venerating God or honoring, one that honors God. And so this was the ministry of Timothy. Love the Lord. We're going to get eventually to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, as Paul writes to them. And he encourages him. Because I believe Timothy was ready to quit the ministry. Because it becomes tough sometimes. Hardship and pain. But still in the greeting in verse 1. And then Paul uses these two Siamese twins that we call. Timothy greets you, Silas greets you, I greet you. The Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the grace of God. And then he says, and the peace of God. Now it's interesting that if you have been around a long time, we're always looking for peace. I mean, who doesn't want it to be peaceful? We see peace in the world. Down with war, bring peace. Yet there's always a war, there's always a, a skirmish, there's always rumors of war, but we desire peace. And some people go as far as, well, we're going to get peace even if, even if it means war. Well, what does that mean? But I'm here to tell you this morning, as we see the Siamese twins that Paul uses continually, you must first come to the grace of God. Unmerited favor. I deserve judgment. You deserve judgment. The church at Thessalonica deserved judgment. And we recognize our sin nature. And we repent of our sins and we ask God, forgive me, Lord. Come into my life. Govern my life. And so the Bible teaches us that I am saved by grace through faith, not of works lest any man should boast. Now, I come to saving grace. Unmerited favor, I deserve judgment, but he gives me his grace. Now because of his grace, because of my salvation intact, I come to his peace. The word peace is translated so beautifully. I come into God's rest. I, I come into God's quietness. You see, the Bible says in the world, I, I will have tribulation. 
but I have come to give you peace, Jesus said. And those of you that can attest this morning of, of your salvation, even though I came to Saving Grace years ago, I remember experiencing the peace of God. I was struggling, struggling with alcohol, struggling with drugs, like to sell those drugs. I was struggling with a cursing habit, struggling and struggling with a sin nature. And you come to saving grace, and God gives you peace. Oh, there's trials and tribulations and frustrations. There's pain. There's hardship. Who doesn't go through trials? This past week, one of the elders of our family in Southern California, uh, my Uncle Philip, lived a long life. But at the age of 95, he succumbed. He died. He went home to be with the Lord. And, you know, I was talking to my mom, and she says, uh, she says, son, you know what? All the dinosaurs in our family, they're dying, and I'm just one of them left. And then I go, Mom, that means I'm going to be a dinosaur now too. We can't keep them forever. Grandma and Grandpa passes away. Aunts and uncles pass away. Cousins pass away. A new generation comes in. But imagine knowing, knowing Christ. I've come to saving grace. So this is what Paul uh, attesting to. Man, you cannot have the peace of God unless you first have his grace. Now, he continues in, in the greeting, and he says, We give thanks to God always for you, speaking to the church at Thessalonica, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul was a man of prayer. We know that. Paul prayed for all the churches. As we studied the book of Philemon, Paul prayed for the individual, Philemon, and his runaway slave, Onesimus. And so Paul always prayed. But there's a play of words here in a sense. In verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you. Is the we here? Is he speaking about Silas? Is he speaking about Timothy? We? Or you know how we, we will say we, and you're basically meaning yourself? Is Paul just speaking about himself? Well, I have another theory. Paul says, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. I believe the we here is Paul the Apostle and the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit tells you what to do. The Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us into all truth. Don't raise your hands, but, you know, I used to struggle with this, waking up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, finally getting to sleep, right? And there you wake up. And you say, Lord, what's this all about? I says, I want to be asleep, Lord. And then God gives you a picture. God gives you a vision. God gives you a name. And it's somebody in the church, somebody in the body of Christ. Well, I used to kind of complain, Lord, why are they in my dream? What's going on? God says, pray for them. I don't know what they're going to go through the next day. They're going to wake up, go to work, go to school. Maybe they're traveling. Pray for them. And so we give thanks to God always for you making mention of you in our prayers. And so Paul always prayed for the churches. Paul always prayed for individuals uh, such as Philemon. In fact, you study most of Paul's epistles at the conclusion, he brings out personal names. Paul was a man of prayer. We're studying in Wednesday nights uh, the book of 1 Samuel. And Samuel says something beautiful concerning being a leader. 
says, God forbid that I do not pray for you. He says, if I do not pray for you, I'm sinning against God. Oh, so important. Don't get frustrated when the Lord gives you somebody from the church. Maybe you don't know their name. You know, two services, we got different people always coming, and sometimes people aren't regulars, and, and they'll come in, they'll say, Pastor Bob, how you doing? And I look at them, I don't know their name. And that's why everybody in the church, hey, brother, how you doing? Sister, how you doing? But they'll come to mind. They'll come to your mind. What's that person do? I see them at church on Sunday. Why do they come to mind? Pray for them. God puts those people in your presence. This was Paul the apostle. Now imagine his excitement. Now he's writing from Corinth. The church at Thessalonica is three weeks in the Lord. Oh, Lord, thank you for that church. I don't think Paul knew everybody. But many times he did call them out by name. But Paul was a man of prayer. And then he goes on to verse 3. Remembering, listen to this. Remembering without ceasing your work. He's speaking to the church at Thessalonica. I remember without ceasing, without interruption, I remember your work of faith. This little church, so young in the Lord, has such a work of faith, a labor of love, and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God. And I believe that he's speaking about Christ there. Because then he says, and the Father. This word without ceasing. When we come to the conclusion of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, as Paul's you know, closing up the letter, Paul says, pray without ceasing, church. Pray without ceasing. Now, the word ceasing is uh, pray with consciousness. Pray with consciousness of prayer. You know, you're driving, and you can't obviously close your eyes and pray. You're driving, and, you know, you can't get on your knees and pray. But maybe, you know, turn off the radio, turn off the CD, and listen to the voice of God. I used to get so angry when, you know, some hoodlums would come next to me and there. We're all waiting for the green light. And, you know, they got the boom box going. The ears are bleeding. You know how it is. And then you hear their music. Oh, my gosh. And then sometimes you'll see them drinking, smoking pot. And, and you know, I used to get frustrated. Oh, Lord. And now I don't do that. If God has placed them there for that 20-second wait, pray for them. Pray for them. Lord, I don't know what these kids are up to, but I was there one time. Maybe not exactly like them, but I was a kid one time. Lord, I pray for them. Lord, I pray for their salvation. And so, so important to pray without ceasing. But notice that Paul says here, without ceasing, uninterruption, with remembrance, without omission is another word for ceasing. Without ceasing, uh, Paul remembered their faith. I could just see Paul at Corinth. Man, that church at Thessalonica had such faith, faith in the Lord. They had childlike faith. They prayed, they believed by faith. They served the Lord, listen, by faith. Because it says here, not only by faith, but their, I remember their labor, their labor of love, their toil in the ministry. And then he uses this word, <laughs> their patience. Now, the word patience can really get a hold of you, especially, listen to me, if you're an un impatient person. 
don't raise your hand. Wives, I know you're looking at your husband right now. But uh, Paul says about the church at Thessalonica. They were a patient group. Now, the best way to teach this, in James chapter 1, Paul, or, or James writes to the church, and he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, various testings in your life, because God is working patience through the testing, through the trial, through the hardship, through the pain. Wait a minute, Pastor Bob, my, uh, my mom's very sick. My mom is ill. My dad's very sick. One of my children is over here at the hospital. How is God working patience in and, and through me through the trial? I don't know how God does it, but he does. But I can testify to this, and some of you also. In the midst of my trials is when God has my attention. In the midst of my hardship, my pain. When my dad was so sick and he eventually uh, succumbed and went home to be with the Lord. When my mom has had major surgeries and it's touch and go, God has my attention. And he calls us to prayer. And we draw closer to the Lord. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Uh, through the testing of your faith, it's going to produce patience. Now let's go back to the text now. And he says here, he says he's going, uh, I, I bring to remembrance, uh, he says, of your faith, your labor of love and patience and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and the Father. The word patience, I've struggled with it for years. Count it all joy, God's building patience. The word patience translates that God's building endurance in your life. He's building stamina. He's building strength. But here's the word that always catches me. The word patience also translates that God is building character in your life. Obviously, character in Christ. Christian character, he's building it. My response to that is, Lord, I have enough character. And yet God is still testing me. He tested Job in chapters 1 and 2. Paul was often tested through trials and hardships. He's there at the church at Thessalonica. He has to leave. When he's at the church at Ephesus, they put him in a basket and he has to leave over the wall. So he leaves Thessalonica now and he goes to Berea and then he has to leave there too. Constantly trials and tribulation. But notice that he's building this character in you, in Christ, of hope. The word confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to the word sight. In the presence of God, which is Christ here, and our heavenly Father. Faith. The church at Thessalonica was a church of faith. The work that God re requires of us, requires of his church, we must have faith faith. Here was a church that was only three weeks in the Lord, and they had such faith. Faith also speaks of trusting God. As you get older, faith is not as easy as it was. Ch children have such beautiful faith. I remember our girls when they were just youngsters, and we used to travel, you know, going to California and that. And we, uh, 
many times we'd travel all the way through, but if we had the time, we had the finances, we would stay in a motel there in, in Arizona, and the kids always wanted a pool, pool area. And so here they are, Dad, Dad, let's go. And they want to jump in the water. And then, you know, Dad, you sit there and you tell your little five, six-year-old, jump. They'll jump. Try it when they're 16. <laughs> You're not going to catch me, man. I know you already. But childlike faith. And that was the church at Thessalonica. They had such faith. But now notice verse 2. He's closing up the salutation, the greeting. And he says, knowing Speaking to the church at Thessalonica, I know this about you. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. The word election is a strange word. It means that God has selected you. God has selected me. If you've been a Christian long enough, there's a few words that go with this being uh, elected of God. Chosen of God is another word. Called of God predestined of God. All of these are basically the same. And as I shared here, the word election basically translates out, God has selected you. God has selected me. And so listen to the translation of verse 4. Knowing that God loves you, dear brothers and sisters, in Christ. Paul's speaking uh, to the church at Thessalonica, but God is speaking to us this morning. And so basically, knowing that God loves you here at Calvary Chapel, brothers and sisters in Christ, he personally chose you to be his own. I wrote this down in my notes. God has handpicked you. God has handpicked me. Our position is to respond to the Lord. There's a lot of people that struggle with election being chosen of God. A lot of people struggle with the word predestined. If I am predestined to go to heaven, if I am predestined uh, to be saved, then does God predestine some not to salvation? Does God predestine some to hell? The answer to that is no. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John 3, 16. Listen to this verse. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Peter writes, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to saving grace. But listen to the words of Christ. I love this. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 16, these are the words of Jesus. You did not choose me, but I have chosen you. You did not choose me, but I have chosen you. Well, Pastor Bob, I don't know. Am I chosen? Am I called? Am I elected? Am I predestined? Yes, but I'm not saved yet. Well, then ask him to come into your life. Well, if he's chosen me, if he's elected me, if I'm predestined, why should I choose him? Then don't choose him. But don't get mad at me when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, I never knew you. You see, God did not create robots. God created man, woman, with free moral agency. We have the responsibility to choose. You have the responsibility to choose. Each one of us. You leave here this morning, and you get in your vehicle, and you go out, and you get over here on, on Church Street, make a left. 
and you're going to come to Las Cruces Street right here. And if the light's green, fine. If not, you got to make a stop. You have a choice. Well, I'm not going to stop today. Great. There's a blue and white, not a black and white. There's Las Cruces. There's a blue and white over there. I guess I better stop. We have choices. We have choices. I travel Delray Boulevard every day. I hate 35 miles, so I'm usually going 45. But when I see, you know, Doña and the Sheriff, I back off. You better be obedient. You're going to get a ticket. I know my wife did. Not me, right? <laughs> Predestined. I believe we are all called. Listen, but we must respond to the calling. Well, how do I know? Then respond to the calling. Well, I'm waiting for him to call me. What are you waiting for? You know, people play mind games with this. I don't understand. And so Paul's giving praise and honor and glory to the, to the Lord because he had chosen the church at Thessalonica. I'll tell you what. Do I fully understand election, predestination, that he chose me, that he elected me, the translation, that he selected me? Do I fully understand it? No. But I praise the Lord that he has chose me. And I praise the Lord that he's given me the ability to choose him. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Salvation is the distance from your mouth to your heart. We have to say it. Well, let him save me. Well, respond. Beautiful. Now let's go to this point. He just touches five verses. We gave the introduction and such. We gave the greeting. But now verses 5 through 10. This model church. This church that was such a great example. In verse 5 he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. That's what we're hearing this morning. We are hearing, we are teaching, we're studying the word of God. But Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also the word came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. I want you to turn to a passage because we need to see it quickly. Go to the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Our gospel did not come uh, to you in word only, but in the power of and we know this now, the power of God's Holy Spirit. The word power is this Greek word dunamis. It's called dynamic power. It's called the power, the unction of the Holy Spirit. It enables me to be a believer in Christ. It enables me to work for Christ. I need power. I need Holy Ghost power. Now, Jesus is getting ready for his ascension. He knows that. There's a 40-day post-resurrection. He's in Jerusalem. Luke writes the account here. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, listen to the words of Christ. But you shall receive power, the word is dunamis, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is the AP experience. And you shall be witnesses, underline that, uh, to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now today in the church, and maybe for a while, it's, there's been a misconception of what the power of the Holy Spirit is for. The power of the Holy Spirit is not just to be able to speak in tongues or to have the gift of prophecy, and yet those gifts are available. Now, on your own, if you want to study, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are found in uh, Romans chapter 12, 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. And then it's also found in Ephesians chapter 4. And I don't believe that those are all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Always be open. But the gift of the Holy Spirit is that we would be effective witnesses for Christ. Because of God's love in and through me, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm able to use the power of God's Holy Spirit. And the church at Thessalonica was such a church that, you know, they were a witness for Christ. Now listen to the word witness. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses. The word is martyr in the Greek. It's where we get our word for martyr. So God calls us to die. Listen, spiritually, physically, emotionally, sometimes we, we do die. We have people in third world countries that are dying. But God calls us, and you pay attention to this, to die to self, pride, anger, strife, jealousy. I mean, the list goes on. Men, I know. <laughs> I know you because I'm one of you. I've been a Christian a long time. But our pride rises its ugly head. Our anger, our temper, I mean, the list goes on. Oh, Lord that I would be an effective witness for you, Lord. This was the church of Thessalonica. They were such an on-fire church. And it wasn't just about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but the empowering to be an effective witness for Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as we just read, Joel gave this prophecy back in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, that this would come to pass. Joel is writing about seven or 800 years before Christ. And yet the prophecy and the fulfillment in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So Paul continues speaking about this church, this beautiful little church. In verse 6, back to our text now. He says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, having received the word and much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, there, there's such a contrast here. How can I go through much affliction and yet have the joy of the Lord. Paul was at Thessalonica, and he had to leave. There was a riot condition. And if they wouldn't have gotten him out of there, they, wouldn't have, they were going to beat him up, maybe kill him. I mean, Paul always was, you know, beaten one way or the other. How can you have the joy of the Lord in the midst of your trials, in the midst of hardships? You get a phone call late at night. Your loved one is in the hospital. Your loved one was in a wreck. Your loved one uh, is in ICU. How do I have joy? Because I'm trusting God. Now, guys, most of you will understand this. Ladies might be a little harder for you, but I think you can grasp it also. How can I have, you know, how can I have received the word in much affliction? How can I have affliction yet with the joy of the Holy Spirit? If any of you have ever played contact sport, football, boxing, wrestling, I'm not talking about, you know, the fake stuff. I'm talking about the real McCoy. Rugby. Anybody play rugby? I mean, I'm talking about contact sport. Uh, don't include badminton. It doesn't work. You've seen the NFL guys. You've seen a boxer that's gone through, you know, 12 rounds and he wins the, the title and he has no teeth. Oh, thank you, dude. I won. You know who amazes me? Hockey players. I don't think a hockey player has any teeth, period. And there they are, all of them at the end when they win the Stanley Cup and they're trying to smile, but there's nothing but holes. Mixed emotion there. They've been afflicted, but the joy of victory, the joy of victory. You play football, the game's over. You've played the two quarters or the four quarters, whatever the coach puts you in. You won the championship and you're in pain. You got a tooth over there on the 40-yard line. You got another tooth on the 50-yard line. There's a clump of hair with blood. You know that's yours. Oh, but we won. We won. That's what it's all about. No pain, no gain, they used to tell us. And so 
Listen to the, what Paul says to you. You became followers, imitators of Christ. You became followers of us and, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, having received the word of God through much affliction, yet with joy of the Holy Spirit. Back in Acts chapter 17, when Paul was at Thessalonica, they were meeting in a home of one man called uh, Jason. And so they got word that the Jews were coming. They caused a riot. You got to read the whole chapter. And they said, we got to get Paul out of here. Then they sent him to Berea. And so when they came to Jason's house, they couldn't find Paul. They took Jason out and they took his friends out and they beat him to a pulp. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have been, if I would have been Jason, hey, Paul, where'd you leave, man? They wanted you and I got beat up. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The joy of the Holy Spirit because you've been afflicted. Only through the power of God can we accomplish this. Now look at verse 7. We spoke about the title of our teaching, the model church, and here we find it. And Paul speaking to the church at Thessalonica, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Acacia. He says, who, bel who believe. In other words, they're believers now. But the word examples here can be translated model or fashion somebody to follow, something to follow. But Vine's Dictionary of Greek Words said this, that the word example here, the word speaking of the church at Thessalonica, they had left the mark. And this example was the mark that's left behind of a scar. It's a medical term. And so in other words, this church was on fire, but they showed the marks. They showed the marks of a true believer. They were examples. The church at Thessalonica became the spiritual envy to all the other believers. In other words, there were Christians that were going, Lord, I want to be like the church at Thessalonica. They became the model church. Throughout Macedonia and Acacia, he says they were examples. Another Greek word, they were patterns to follow. I've been involved with Calvary Chapel for many, many years, and we have patterned basically after Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, most Calvaries do. It's interesting, behind me you see the Calvary Chapel dove. It's very significant. I remember when they were laying the pieces of tile in the entrance of our church, the guys took this particular dove off because it was perfectly copied, and then they cut it out. And so they made it over there on the entrance, and when you walk through it, it's the Calvary Chapel dove. I've been to some Calvaries, and they try to do their own dove, and it looks it doesn't look like a Calvary dove. It looks like an albatross. And so the mimicking, the copying, listen, of the dove. Okay, so that's a non-essential, but listen to what Chuck has left us as a legacy, what we're doing here this morning. The teaching of the Word of God, that's what Calvary Chapel does. We had a couple that was here this morning, and they go to Calvary Chapel in Tucson, and he told me after the service, Pastor Bob, you're exactly right. No matter what Calvary I go to, the pastor's going to be different. The preaching style is going to be different. But they all teach the Word of God. That's the legacy that was left behind. That's the model church that we should desire to leave behind. <laughs> you see, we love fashion. We love to follow examples. And uh, it's crazy, some of the things. And so the churches that were in Macedonia and the churches that were in Achaia, they wanted to be like the Thessalonians. Those of you that grew up in the 60s, remember? You had to have long hair. Now, I envied all the guys. They had their long hair. My hair grew out this way because it's curly. And then, you know, all of a sudden, here comes the 80s, and the bald look comes in, and the bald look's still here. And then what happened to the fashion of bell-bottoms? You know, they come and they go. But the model of the church at Thessalonica, 
Back in the 80s, some of you remember MC Hammer? Remember those pants he used to wear, the balloon pants? I remember somebody said, Pastor Bob, you ought to wear those. Are you kidding me? I look like a cargo chute. Come on. But you see, we mimic, we copy, we do all this. What's, I don't understand, kids, I'm sorry. I don't understand your pants way down to the bottom. It, it's, it doesn't identify to me. I walk by them and I'm pulling my pants up, man. I, you know, but everybody has the fashion. They wanted to fashion themselves. They wanted to pattern themselves. They wanted to be examples of the church of Thessalonica. That was their testimony. Look at verse 8. For from you, he's speaking to the church of Thessalonica, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, he says, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. I like what Paul was saying here. Man, we go to minister and we don't have to say nothing. Seems like the church at Thessalonica has already been here. Seems like a couple of brothers from Thessalonica already been here. But notice the word here. In verse 8, from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. The word sounded forth, that it echoed forth. The gospel sounded forth the alert. When you first heard the gospel, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and you knew you had to respond, receive Christ or reject Christ, that's our choice. The church at Thessalonica was so on fire. They were the model church that was spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. There were only three weeks in the Lord. Pastor Chuck taught us many times, many years back, that true evangelism is the product of a healthy, well-fed church. We've always been instructed, if God gives you 25 people, teach them. If he gives you 2,500 people, teach them. And I praise the Lord for the teaching ministry. In the Old Testament, it tells us that sheep are going to beget other sheep. One commentary said this about verse 8. Many merchants from Macedonia and Acacia uh, and different parts of Greece heard of the testimony of the Thessalonians. Having received the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, was now carried uh, as far and wide. The word of the Lord had sounded from the church of Thessalonica that we would pattern ourselves after that particular church. This is the reason why we're praying about going on the radio. Not that Calvary Chapel would be on the radio, but that the word of God would be sounded for, that people would come to saving grace. Look at verse 9 and 10, the conclusion. He says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had uh, to you and how you turned to God from idols. This is their testimony, to serve the living and the true God. At the church at Thessalonica, the city of Thessalonica itself, we shared in the introduction, there were many Greeks, there were many Romans, and many of them were worshiping idols. And now they come to saving grace. God has the power and the authority to transform us, to change us. I want you to turn to a passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, 2, and 3. And Paul speaks about concerning spiritual gifts. Yes, we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And yes, the Holy Spirit comes into my life, into your life. The Holy Spirit governs me. But the Holy Spirit begins to chip away. There are certain things that we cannot do as Christians. If we were into fornication before we came to Christ, I'm a born-again believer, then fornication needs to be stopped. Adultery, stealing, cursing. The Holy Spirit will bring a conviction. They were struggling, many of them, listen, with idol worship. Now, idol worship is, an idol is anything that takes the place of God. Not necessarily, you know, a statue of St. Jude. I grew up in Catholicism, so I know. 
Not necessarily a, a statue of St. Martin de Porres. Anything that takes the place of God becomes your idol. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12. Look at verse 1. He says, Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, sisters, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, you were heathens, basically, non-believers, Gentiles. Somehow or another, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. So Paul said, you're doing it ignorantly. Now, as I shared my background in Catholicism, I had to come to grips with this. I want you to study something on your own. You're taking notes, study Psalm 115, study, study Psalm 135. They were led astray by deaf idols. The psalmist declares we, we worship these idols that are made with man's hands. They're made of plaster of Paris. They're made of wood. They're made of iron. When Paul was at, at the church at Ephesus, the idols that were made of silver, idols that were made of gold. And so there the psalmist, Psalm 115, Psalm 135, he says, these idols have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have a mouth and they can't speak. They have a nose and they can't smell. We need to worship the true and the living God. So important to see this. He finishes it off in verse uh, 3. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the, the Spirit of God says, Jesus be accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church of Thessalonica came to saving grace, and they put away their idols, and they began to worship God. Now, verse 10, he comes to the conclusion. And to wait for his son. This was a testimony of the church at Thessalonica. Paul says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, even Jesus Christ who delivered us from the wrath to come. As I shared in the introduction, when we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul's going to speak about the rapture of the church. And Paul commended the church at Thessalonica. They had such a faith that Jesus was coming. Here we are 1950 years later. We know that Christ hasn't returned. His promises, if he completed his first coming. If he died on the cross and was buried and he rose again, be assured that he will return. And so the church at Thessalonica, waiting for Jesus' soon return, this is that patient hope that we spoke of. One commentary said this about verse 10. Your testimony, speaking of the church at Thessalonica, your testimony as a model church speaks of how you are looking forward to the, the coming of God's Son from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom God raised from the dead, he is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. I believe that the church will be harpossled. I believe that the church will be raptured. We'll deal with that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. I believe in teaching the rapture of the church. I believe that that the Christians, this is their hope. The world has nothing to offer me or to offer you. Is Jesus who we hope in and hope for. But I believe that the church is not going to go through the wrath of God. Now, that doesn't mean we don't go through trials and tribulations, but the seven years of tribulation, I believe, will be for those that are left behind. There's going to be seven sealed judgments. According to Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 18, there's going to be seven trumpet judgments. There's going to be seven bold judgments. In Revelation chapter 5, uh, we see the church in heaven with Christ. In Revelation chapter 19, Jesus returns to earth with his church to judge the nations and to set up the kingdom age. The model church, as we conclude this morning, waits with hope 
with anticipation, with faith and love at his soon return. The question is, are we ready to meet Jesus? Are we ready to meet our maker? Are you born again of the Holy Spirit? Have you given your life once and for all uh, to Christ, not to Calvary Chapel, not to any other chapel or church, denomination, non-denomination? Have you given your life to Christ? The church at Thessalonica in a three-week span came to know Christ, was on fire with the Lord. Paul said they were elected, they were called, they were chosen, they were predestined.